You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello and welcome to the Heart Sounds podcast for March 2018. This is the podcast where I look back at some of the top cardiology stories of the past month written by the TCTMD news team. Heart Sounds gives you the rare chance to listen in on some of the audio our reporters use to pull together their stories. This month was a big one for cardiology conferences. Back in the first week of March, I myself, along with TCTMD's Michael O'Reardon, covered the CRT meeting in Washington, D.C. A week later, we had a team of five reporters at the ACC meeting in Orlando, Florida. I'm going to devote the next 10 minutes or so to some of the big clinical trials that came out of ACC. I hope you'll also head to tctmd.com to check out all the other news from both meetings that didn't make it into this podcast, not to mention all the other interesting things we reported on this month. Let's get started. Touted as the blockbuster trial of ACC 2018 was Odyssey. If you attended the opening late breaker at ACC, you'll know they really put this PCSK9 inhibitor trial and its presenter in the hot seat. When Gabriel Stegg took to the podium to present the Odyssey results, he was all in his lonesome, staring out not only at the packed auditorium, but also at the expert panel seated directly in front of him, rather than offering him some camaraderie on the stage itself. Stegg took it all in stride. I've noticed it's hard to ruffle the French unless you mess with their food and drink. As you likely know by now, Odyssey enrolled patients with the recent ACS and uncontrolled cholesterol levels despite maximal use of statins over a run-in period of 2 to 16 weeks. As Stegg showed at ACC, treatment with alirocumab significantly reduced LDL cholesterol levels as compared with placebo, and that was associated with a significant 15% relative risk reduction in major adverse cardiovascular events. In the finding that had everyone buzzing at ACC, alirocumab was also associated with a 15% relative reduction in the risk of all-cause death, a finding that Stegg characterized as being of, quote, borderline significance, given the choice of p-value in the trial. Still, this was the kind of finding that people have been hoping for ever since Fourier last year, with evolocumab, showing a similar reduction in MACE, but not a significant benefit on mortality. Find Mike's coverage of Odyssey on tctmd.com. For now, here's Valentin Fuster of Mount Sinai in New York, who is the official discussant for Odyssey. In a press conference after the main tent presentation, Fuster gave members of the media his take-home points from the trial. The comment number one is that I believe this study is going to change practice. It was a hypothesis that has been fulfilled. Alorecuma versus placebo reduces cardiovascular morbidity and mortality after recent acute coronary syndromes in patients with elevated levels of atherogenic lipoproteins despite intensive or maximum tolerated statin therapy. The hypothesis was absolutely fulfilled. Comment number two, the results were not trivial, and that is, it was a, a decrease in the primary endpoint by 15%. And if the LDL cholesterol levels were more than 100 milligrams, the decrease was by 24%. This is not trivial. Comment number three about all-cause mortality, the same thing. It was a decrease by 15%. And in patients with more than 100 milligrams DL of LDL cholesterol, I'm talking, was 29% decrease. Comment number four. It is inter- it's interesting that the LDL levels in which there is success are very low. And the message is maybe what we consider a normal LDL 
cholesterol level is too high today. And we have to go lower and lower, and this trial gives this message. The final comment, comment number five, is a concern. Up until now, the feasibility and the affordability of using this type of drugs has been extremely difficult. And I hope this particular study really is a trigger, is a catalyzer for making this drug much more available today in people who need it. Thank you. The second showcase late breaker on the opening day of ACC 2018 was VEST. Here, presenter Jeffrey Olgan from the University of California, San Francisco, revealed the first randomized trial data for the LifeVest. This is a wearable defibrillator that the FDA first approved for use over a decade and a half ago. The VEST trial was specifically looking at patients discharged from hospital after an MI who also had low left ventricular ejection fractions. As Olgan showed here, the life vest failed to significantly reduce the primary endpoint of sudden death and death from VT in the first 90 days post-MI when added to guideline-directed medical therapy. Total mortality, however, a secondary outcome in the study, occurred at a significantly lower rate among patients assigned to wear the vest, 3.1% versus 4.9%. Based on that lower total mortality finding, Olgan said it's reasonable to prescribe the vest in patients who are post-MI and have a reduced ejection fraction until further evaluation for a permanent ICD can happen at 40 to 90 days. That's pretty much in keeping with current guidelines, which say that a wearable defibrillator may be, quote, reasonable. The life vest is made up of defibrillation electrodes, ECG electrodes, a rechargeable monitor and battery pack, as well as response buttons that the patient can push to abort planned shocks. One detail to pay attention to in VEST was the fact that while crossovers were prohibited in the trial, 43 patients in the VEST arm actually didn't wear it, while 20 in the control arm ended up getting a life vest. Asked about this during the press conference, Olgan agreed that compliance with these devices needs to be taken into account, not only in interpreting the study findings, but in day-to-day -day practice as well. If, on the basis of these findings, a treating physician thinks it's worth fitting a patient with a vest, there needs to be some thoughtful discussion about whether they are actually going to wear it. I think that, as with almost all of our therapies, there's a portion of patients that are just going to be non-compliant. And I think, um, as we do with the decision around ICDs, the patient should be brought into the decision about whether they should have this therapy and whether they should take it home and whether they're going to wear it. Um, so I do think that there's some shared decision-making that needs to happen in the decision to prescribe this in these patient populations. Secondly, as with everything, I think there's room for improvement to make the, the therapy more tolerable and easier to wear for everybody. Um, it, it, we, we were sort of quite stunned at this bimodal distribution of either, you know, nobody wore it, or people who didn't wear it, didn't wear it at all, and those that wore it, wore it quite, you know, quite extensively. It's, it's a really interesting phenomenon. Keeping with the same theme of trials that did not quite show what people might have hoped, let's talk about smart date. This was a South Korean trial that compared 6 versus 12 months of dual antiplatelet therapy in ACS patients undergoing PCI with current generation DES. 
If you've been following this field as closely as we have, you'll know that there's a lot of hope that these newer stents will not need to be accompanied by protracted DAPT. As Yael Maxwell wrote for TCTMD from the ACC meeting, smart date was actually positive. According to investigators led by Haiyan Chiol Guan of Sung Kyun Kwan University in Seoul, six-month DAPT was non-inferior to 12 months for a primary composite endpoint of all-cause mortality, MI, or stroke. Importantly, there were no increases in bleeding among patients taking the therapy for longer, a key reason for trimming back DAPT duration to six months in the first place. Investigators did, however, see a worrying signal of more MI among those taking DAPT for six months only, and this, said investigators, needs to be taken seriously. For the time being, Guan said, prolonged DAPT in ACS patients without excessive risk of bleeding should remain the standard of care. Dipti Yachapuria from Jeffrey Carlton Heart and Vascular Institute in Newport Beach delivered her thoughts on Smart Date to reporters at the media briefing. So I want to congratulate Dr. Guan on a very well-done study. I mean, we know that the ACS patient is different than the stable ischemic heart disease patient. We know that the patients with ACS have a higher risk of recurrent ischemic events. And so that's the reason for the current guidelines recommending dual antiplatelet therapy for 12 months or longer in patients with ACS. I think that as an interventionalist, we, we, we've had more of a conversation about bleeding risk. That's the, the movement towards radial and trying to even uh, try to give shorter therapies so that we can decrease that bleeding risk. And I think there are a lot of us in the interventional community that have felt that maybe some of the trials that had directed those guidelines were based on older platforms of drug-eluting stents, and that maybe with the more current drug-eluting stents that this may change. So I think that Dr. Wan and his colleagues have nicely shown that, you know, this increased risk of MI with the six-month DAPT, it still is not enough to make us feel comfortable because I think that ACS patient is a fundamentally different patient. So I would say that we would have to stick to our current guidelines and he's shown that there's really not a significant increase in bleeding risk so that we can be comfortable treating these patients with ACS for a minimum of 12 months and potentially longer based on clinical criteria. Let's stay with this theme of ACS patients and those pesky antiplatelet meds for one more trial. Artemis, led by Tracy Wang of Duke University Medical Center, tackled the very real problem of how to increase the likelihood that patients are prescribed and then actually take more potent P2Y12 inhibitors after a myocardial infarction. Artemis randomized 11,000 MI patients at more than 300 U.S. hospitals. All of the patients enrolled had some kind of health insurance. The choice of ticagrelor or clopidogrel was left to the doctor's discretion, but hospitals were randomly assigned to usual care or to giving patients vouchers that would cover the co-payments on their medication for a one-year period. A full 17% of patients in the study said that cost had been a key reason, in the past, why they hadn't filled a prescription. In Artemis, patients who got the vouchers were more likely to be taking the pricier, more effective ticagrelor one year after their heart attack. Moreover, physicians were also more likely to prescribe ticagrelor if patients were getting some help with drug costs. In what was no doubt a blow to investigators, however, better adherence to the more potent pills did not reduce the risk of MACE at one year. As Caitlin Cox reported from ACC, one puzzling finding was that more than one quarter of the patients who got vouchers didn't even use them. Have a listen to Tracy Wang putting the Artemis findings in perspective for journalists. 
What was encouraging was when we looked at the as-treated analyses compared, comparing the patients who did and didn't uh, use the voucher, we did start seeing those MACE curves diverge. And at the end of the day, I'd say because of the 28% who didn't use it, we were probably underpowered to detect that MACE difference. And if we had more patients, maybe we would have seen that. I, I have to put some caution because it's an as-treated analysis, secondary analysis. I'll highlight one thing, which is the biggest impact was actually on us as clinicians. Notice that the, the absolute difference there was something like 18.7% for lower clopidogrel use and 27% increase in ticagrelor use. So this says that this is very important to us as practicing clinicians in that we all want to do the right thing, but we're constrained by this cost concern. And so that tells us that taking the cost piece out of this allows us to do the right thing for us, to do the best thing for our patients. Okay, I promise I'm not trying to bum you out with all these trials that didn't quite come up roses. Let's talk briefly about two hypertension trials that actually showed marked improvements in blood pressure control using some unconventional approaches. The first has been dubbed the Black Barbershop Study. As Todd Neal reported from ACC, the study enrolled African-American men with uncontrolled hypertension, bringing pharmacists into the barbershops that the men were already accustomed to visiting regularly. The strategy led to substantial drops in the patrons' systolic and diastolic blood pressures, the former falling by an average of 27 millimeters of mercury over six months. In the control group, where barbers simply promoted follow-up with primary care physicians and lifestyle modification, patrons saw declines of just 9 millimeters of mercury over the same period. In a second hypertension study presented immediately after the Black Barbershop late-breaker at ACC, Triumph investigators looked at combining three low-dose antihypertensive meds in a single pill. Top-line results? Nearly 70% of patients randomized to a polypill that combined a low-dose ARB, diuretic, and calcium channel blocker reached the target blood pressure level, compared with just over half in the regular care group. Mean drop in systolic BP was nearly 30 millimeters of mercury in the polypill group, compared with 20 in the control group. This study was conducted in Sri Lanka, but according to presenter Ruth Webster from the George Institute for Global Health in Sydney, Australia, the strategy makes sense in other parts of the world as well. I myself covered this story for TCTMD, and I'll hope you'll check it out. In this audio clip from the ACC press conference, you'll hear Webster summing up the study findings for reporters, and immediately after Webster, you'll hear UCLA's Carol Watson with her reaction to the results. So in conclusion, we would state that early use of low-dose 3-in-1 combination blood pressure-lowering pills are safe and they provide faster, better blood pressure control compared to usual care. And we would suggest, this strongly suggest, that the strategy of early use of low-dose triple therapy in all settings, not just in usual care, but not just in low-income countries, but in high-income countries as well, um, is supported by this study. Um, the most urgent need now is effective implementation and scale-up, particularly in low- and middle-income countries where the greatest disease burden is, but even in countries such as the US. Um, and I think this probably follows on nicely from the previous um, uh, presentation. Uh, we still have pockets in high-income countries where targets are not being reached, and so we would suggest that this is a good strategy to be used in these um, countries as well. Thank you, Dr. Webster. Dr. Watson, would you comment, please? Thank you. That was a home run. This is something we've known for so long, but never do. We were told in older guidelines to take a single drug, 
push it as far as you could, and then think about adding a second. And we've had decades of experience since then showing us that you increase side effects and you don't really increase efficacy. So finally, we have guidelines that say you can start two drugs if you're really high. But now this is the first time we've said you can not only can start two drugs, you can start three drugs, and you don't even have to be that high. And I think it really does go along with what we know the pathophysiology is. Low-dose combinations with synergistic effects improve outcomes. They improve blood pressure control and limit side effects, and that was, again, a home run. I said earlier that I'd be focusing on ACC only for this month's podcast, but I can't resist one tidbit from CRT. One of the late-breaking sessions there had just wrapped up and I was still seated, muddling about on my computer. I glanced up and for a moment couldn't figure out what I was seeing. That's because an all-woman panel was taking the stage, something I know I've never seen before at an interventional cardiology meeting, given the dearth of women in this subspecialty. In the next minute, it became clear that this session was a live case, led by Anna Purnakini from Mount Sinai in New York, and that every person in the cath lab, operators, nurses, staff, and even the patient on the table, all of them were women. Michael Reardon ended up writing a story for TCTMD about what many were calling a historic event. At the time, I can tell you, I wasn't the only one gaping at the screen as if the entire cast of Avengers had taken over the auditorium. It just looked weird, even though, in this day and age, it really shouldn't. I asked Roxana Moran, one of the panelists, about why this all-female session seemed like such a big deal. I mean, it really shouldn't be a big deal. It should be the norm. Why shouldn't it be a big deal? And it really shouldn't be. In this day and age, we shouldn't be thinking that it's a big deal. But it took 40 years of PCI history to actually have something like this. And then have everyone look to see, wow, how can they actually do it? Can these women actually pull this off? Complex PCI, a female patient, all female cat in the, you know, on the panel, actually having really intelligent, very important conversation around the, the case, just as the guys would. And I think that's why it was weird for many to imagine that this is a strange thing where it, it really should have been the norm. Of course, our coverage from CRT 2018 spanned plenty of other topics as well, including cath lab radiation, questions about the co-apt trial design, ticagrelor for platelet blockade after TAVR, radial access PCI, and much more. Navigate to the conference tab on tctmd.com and click CRT 2018 to find more. You can do the same for the ACC meeting, where our conference page has even more in the way of news, slides, blogs, and videos from this year's conference. In April, the news team will be on the road again. Yael Maxwell is heading back to Orlando to check out the fellows meeting mid-month. Laura McEwen and I will be at the Sky Conference a week or so later. If you're heading to either of these meetings, drop us a line and let us know what you're up to. If you see us on site, make sure to say hello. If you have any comments on this podcast, don't be shy. I'm all ears. Find me on Twitter as ShellyWood2 or email me via my bio page on tctmd.com. Don't forget, we have two other great podcasts. These are Talking Points with Michael Gibson and TCT Radio. Find all of these under podcasts on TCTMD, iTunes, and Google Play. I'll be back with more Heart Sounds next month. See you then. <laughs>